Welcome to the WMKT Week in Review. For today's episode, we are interviewing John DeMoose. John is the current representative for the Michigan House 107th District. It is his first term, which is ending this year, and he is currently running for the Michigan Senate's 37th District seat. John, thanks for being here today. How are you? Hey, Nick. It's great. I love being here with you. I love doing radio and podcasts, and I'm excited to see you're launching this whole thing. Absolutely. We're really happy to have you. So uh, I'd like to get a little background about yourself, if you could, and especially your uh, video production company, 45 uh, North Productions. Absolutely. You know, we started that production company in the year 2000, and the goal was that in this deeply divided era, which remember back then, that was when the Bush-Gore campaign was going on, and it was decided basically in the Supreme Court. Americans were at each other's throats then, just like we are today. Maybe it's a little less hostile back then, but but even so, we thought, aren't there some great American stories of which all Americans can be proud? And so we launched it. We We do a lot of marketing and advertising too. That sort of helps pay the bills. But the real bread and butter was telling these great American stories by producing national television specials. So we worked with the Pentagon, for instance, to do a national television special on Arlington National Cemetery. What does that mean that that is our nation's most sacred shrine? I mean, the the Soviet Union, their sacred shrine was was Lenin's tomb. For Mm -hmm. us, the most hallowed portion of our most sacred shrine is the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. I mean, that's a uniquely American idea that our greatest heroes are people who we don't even know their names. Sure. And then we, we moved on. We, we did a national television special on Medal of Honor recipients. And we could even talk about that if, if you wanted to, because I got to interview a huge portion of the living Medal of Honor recipients. And these are the most humble people who literally sacrifice the, their lives to save the men be, beside sure. them and to fight for freedom and these things. Just great American stories. We ended up working with Ford Motor Company to tell their story during the turnaround after three years in a row, in fact, with with national television specials during the turnaround after the Great Recession. We've gotten involved deeply with a lot of groups in Washington, sort of working to bring people together in this divided this divided age we live in. I've worked with a lot of local businesses too, car dealerships and companies that are uh, small manufacturing companies. So ultimately this gave us a, gave me a broad range of experience in a lot of different industries, which wouldn't you know it is exactly what we need in Lansing because we deal with not just one, two or three issues. We deal with issues across the board from, from healthcare to building roads. So it's been a really good preparation, a lot of good experience. Yeah. Uh, so you you actually mentioned that the country's been divided since you know like 2000 and a lot of people especially people in my generation younger generation are kind of thinking that this whole Trump Obama era was the start of where all this political tension came from and it's been going on for decades and you know especially since the Bush administration how come that's not been getting any better it's actually seeming to me to be getting worse you're, yeah, you're right. I mean, we have always in the history of our country had division. I mean, even the worst division we ever had, we had a civil war back sure. in the 1800s. But that was something entirely different than what we're seeing today. That was a problem that needed to be solved. And right. that was the only way to getting rid of slavery. That was the only way that was going to happen. So, But we've always had debates. And you usually it's healthy discord, you know, where there's a certain baseline of respect. And I think what you're responding to is that back in, even in the Bush Gore era uh, and some of this division we've had going back throughout our history, there's always been a certain baseline level of grace and civility. And over the past 10 or 15 years, it seems like that's gone out the window. And now we don't just uh, disagree with each other. We hate each other's guts. Right. And and that's wrong. I mean, if you look at what, what has made America great, it's those moments when we can come together. Any great crisis we've had in the history of our country, whether it's World War II or World War One, any you name it, mm-hmm. or any great thing we've accomplished, like going to the moon, it came because we came together as a people and we were of one mind. Even though we were divided on certain issues, we still stood together. If you look at the past couple of years when this has gotten really bad in this most recent crisis, this has really sort of brought out the worst in the American character. Sure. And uh, that's one of the things that I am absolutely committed to doing is to bringing back a level of grace and civility, to treating each other with kindness and respect. I mean, this is, uh, I'm a Christian believer, and I can tell you that in Scripture, it is very clear that we are called to treat others as we would like to be treated. That's the end of the story. So all these flags out there saying, you've seen them, they're terrible flags. This isn't how America's supposed to work. We can disagree. It doesn't mean compromising on ideals. 
or even uh, or uh, positions on certain policies. I, I have very, very strong, committed conservative beliefs on things, but I'm not going to go out and just try to um, be at somebody else's throat on this. That's sure. not the way good things happen. So you said you wanted to bring some civility back into you know public discourse on politics. Is that the reason why you ran for office, or is that just part of it? So wh- why did you start running for public office? Well, that was that? one of the reasons. As you see, we don't need to be at each other's throats here, even if we have big disagreements. I started running for office because I've always dreamed of running for office. Sure. From the time I was back as head of the college Republicans at University of Michigan in the early 90s, um, I've been deeply involved in these things, and my career path went a different direction, working more behind the scenes, but this desire to actually run for office never left. And so I had, at various points in my career, thought, well, maybe I'll run for this position or this position. It, it just seemed to be the right time sure. to run for the state house, and now running for the state senate is a total natural because it's basically my district plus Traverse City, and we have mm-hmm. deep roots in Traverse City because my my uh, grandfather was city manager there back in the fifties and sixties. My wife and I used to live there when we were newly married, and that I have to tell you though is one of the big reasons why I'm running right uh, again and why I want to keep going is to demonstrate a different kind of leadership because we can go down there. You know, I get criticized for this, mm-hmm. for trying to work across the aisle on certain things. And there's certain things where we'll never agree. There's no question. But for trying to build relationships across the aisle. And I always ask people, well, what would you have me do? You want me to go down there and be at war with this other side? And some of these are fine people. They have, in my mind, misguided ideas, and I'm going to try and persuade them. But I have zero chance of persuading them if I come down there and call them names and argue with them and fight, I might walk away patting myself on the back. Or, wow, I sure showed them. But at the end of the day, I've accomplished nothing. Now, also, that's the right thing to do. But it's also the practical thing to do because we do have a divided gov- government right now. Mm-hmm. If we hope to have anything signed into law, we have to be able to work with the other side on these things. It's just a fact. And we don't have anywhere near the votes to overturn vetoes. So this this is the way we get. And you know what? That's not such a bad thing either. There are certain things we'll never agree on. But I think you have to be deliberate and try to tone down some of this rhetoric and see if we can't work together. And I think the people expect it. Sure. So you're leaving the uh, 107th run for the 37th Senate seat instead of serving another term. What was your motivation for um, for doing that? Well, a lot of people had been sort of prodding me all along. John, why aren't you even considering this? The, this district is sort of custom made for you. It's perfect. And uh, I just sort of was ignoring it. But then I got some calls from different supporters saying, John, you really need to think about this. And then the we saw the new district lines, and it really is custom made for me. Like I said, we have deep roots in Traverse City. My grandfather was the city manager there way back when. My grandmother was a co-founder of the Old Town Playhouse. And we just have great okay. memories and uh, from that area. And for, our first three children were all born there. And so it, there is that, that it feels like home. This district, you know, there's three population centers. I live in the Petoskey area. Uh, I have lived in the Traverse City area, and I'm representing the Sault Ste. Marie area. So it's sure. just a natural fit. But the other thing is, it's an interesting district because it is wide ranging. We uh, this is not a this is not a laydown. I don't think I think the Democrats are going to target this seat something fierce, especially with the redistricting. You put you put some of our eastern UP counties together with Leelanau County, and it takes somebody who's able to speak to both sides and bring people together. And I think I'm the only one running who can do that. So that was what sealed the deal. Once I saw that, I've spent a career working with different types of people, trying to bring them to good good ideas and persuade them. And so this is a natural fit for me. That's why I went for it. Sure. So what, how are you different than Tristan Cole, who's the uh, the other individual who's running that has a lot of name recognition as well? Because some people would argue you guys are very similar in policy. What, what is the thing that stands out between you two, in your opinion? Well, I mean, we, we may or may not be similar in policy. I uh, actually haven't studied a lot of what he did. I can tell you one thing is I'm very hands-on. I'm very hands-on as a legislator, and I, I, I my understanding is that's not been the case with Tristan. I think I've uh, really kind of been frustrating to some of my staff by by the virtue of how hands-on I am with crafting legislation and with being in the trenches on these things. But I know no other way to do this. I mean, when I was when we had our film production ca- uh, company, I carried the gear. 
I mean, I had made it a law for myself. I'd seen one too many producers uh, just sort of sitting back nicely dressed and letting everybody else carry the gear. And I made a rule for myself that I'm always going to carry more than anybody else. And so once I got into this position, I'm deeply involved in the, leg- the legislative side of things. Um, I, I don't think he has a history of bringing people together. And that is something I'm very, very much committed to. Where we can work together, I want to be able to work together because it's the right thing to do. And like I said, it's the practical thing to do. I think I have a lot more experience uh, across the board over the last 30 years touching so many different industries. And that is well suited to Lansing because, you know, it's funny. You, we campaign on four or five issues a lot of times, especially in the primary. Mm-hmm. But that constitutes a very, very small percentage of things we ever look at. Most of these issues never come up again. Um, I've been shocked by that. But I have experience in a wide ranging. I worked with a hospital here in Petoskey to help uh, build their new center. So I got deeply into healthcare and some of the crisis, uh, crises which are out there. I worked with Ford Motor Company. I've worked with car dealers in the area. I sort of I've run a small business for almost for twenty five years. So I have written the payroll checks. I've selected the health insurance. I know how to run businesses, and I know what our small businesses are facing. So I think my experience um, really sets me apart from Tristan. So what's the primary achievement of your time in office, and what do you think you could have done better? Well, I'll tell you what. Right now, I'm really proud of some of the things. They, they haven't. It's not a done process. It, the biggest surprise to me is how slow things move in Lansing. It's just unbelievable. That's actually probably a good thing. It's the same in Washington in terms of it prevents wild swings in government. Um, this is how our system is designed. But I'm really proud to have stood up on a number of local issues. And and what I found down there is that most of what we legislate on isn't really hard partisan, uh, have a lot of partisan ra- uh, ramifications. It's a lot more north-south, northern Michigan versus sure. southern Michigan. So I've taken on this this uh, bills like, and this is what something I'm really proud of, uh, allowing community colleges to offer four-year nursing degrees. This is something that is really important in our area. Downstate, they don't get it, but we have bills. I'm working with John Roth um, on a two-bill package to allow community colleges like North Central Michigan College to offer these. This came directly from working with the people um, in our area. I met with the head of uh, McLaren Hospital just uh, down the street here in Petoskey, and he said they're having a desperate nursing shortage. And not only that, of the nurses they do have, a huge portion of them need to go back and complete their four-year degree. We don't want them to have to go downstate because they never come back. So we, he wants the program. North Central Michigan College in Petoskey is one of the best nursing programs in the state, if not the country. They want to offer this program, and yet we're sitting down in Lansing saying these two groups can't work together. That's crazy in my They want to offer a four-year program. Four-year program, yep. And so it's a big fight. When when we announced this, the universities came out in force against this, and they're worried about protecting their turf. It really is just about that. But this is something we need. The thing I'm probably most proud about, and, and, um, and I just absolutely love this part of the job, since things work so slowly from a legislative standpoint, I quickly realized we can be way more effective from a constituent standpoint. So I love getting out there in the communities. I can put people together with agencies. I can help solve individual problems. I can bring people together within a community. Just the stuff we do out there. I've touched every, been to every square inch of this community over and over again. I mean, it's been dizzying, but I love that part of the process. The other thing I'm I'm proud of, and uh, this one just finally passed the House this week. But um, if you remember, it is we've been working with unemployment problems our whole time there. I'd say seventy five percent of the calls I get are people who can't get unemployment, which is due due them. Remember, the state made people not work; they forced people not to go to work last sure. year. Anyways, on top of that, remember that unemployment is not a government handout. Businesses like mine and like so many others have paid into this system for years so that when people, when our people needed it, it was there for them. So what happened last year? They were changing all these rules. All of a sudden, self-employed people qualified or gig economy workers qualified. People were forced to sit at home. And uh, and so they wondered, well, I wonder if a, a huge swath of them wondered, well, I wonder if unemployment could help me and my family right now. So the way any normal person would find that out is they'd apply for unemployment. 
And if the state of Michigan then says, yes, you do qualify, and then they send you a check, so you really qualify, they, that's sort of the end of the story, but not in Michigan. Because last summer, 700,000 Michigan residents got a letter from the state of Michigan saying that, well, we may have made a mistake, and you might owe that money back. And so my, I, we just last week voted out my bill that says, no, if the state of Michigan made a mistake, and I, again, I'm not talking about fraud. Anybody who committed fraud deserves to be in jail. They, they robbed from all of us. There's no question there. But these are well-meaning, hardworking families who thought they were doing the right thing. The state now says, oh, we might have uh, incorrect, been wrong in approving you. We want our money back. My bill says no. If it's the state's fault, the state eats it. So that, that pertains only to the money that's already been sent out and that they're asking for back, not to ease the uh, restrictions on... Yeah, yeah. This is unemployment. No, benefits. that's right. This is just okay. dur- during that time period. You know, I it came really my interest in it came from a local family here. I got a call in May of 2021. In November of 2020, this family had been told you owe back ten thousand dollars of unemployment. And if anybody's ever seen these letters, the way they they I can't believe how the state treats our people. It's as if it looks as if you've committed some serious crime, the way they even word this. Mm-hmm. So their family, they decided that his wife would take a second job on. They'd been dutifully paying back for six months, $400 a, a month, doing what they could, even though they're, they were in desperate straits there. He finally called me in May of last year, six months into this and said, John, you know, I know we owe this money back. He said, but I still don't really understand what did we do wrong? I mean, the company I worked for went out of business and I... Said, well, that sounds strange. So we got on it with the unemployment insurance agency. And you know what? He didn't owe a dime back. They were wrong. They admitted that, oh, we made a mistake. He actually doesn't owe any money back. And they wrote a check back for all their repayments. But think what happened there in that six months' time. Mm-hmm. This family was in a panic for six solid months, all because of a government's mistake. I mean, we need to treat our people better. And that's been probably the thing I'm most proud of is. I mean, we've done a lot of different things. I fought really hard to get us open back up and during these shutdowns. And um, I've got a number of, of sort of bills that I really appreciate, uh, really excited about. But but I think that's been one that I'm most proud of. Would you argue, though, that the it's not the, the fault of the elected officials? It's more of the bureaucracy that slows oh, things is. down? Well, the, yeah, I mean, it is the bureaucracy that slows things down. I mean, it, it, I guess we're talking about two different things. The slow process is the way that the system is built. I mean, it's intentional so that I can't come in w- with an idea for a law in the next week. It's, you know, it passes and it's done. So moving slowly is usually a good thing. But the bureaucracy really controls so much of what we're seeing. I mean, unemployment is completely a bureaucracy. The, the, the debacle we've seen with up to $8 billion worth of fraud and inefficiency and where people can't even get the benefits they've been guaranteed and that they deserve, that's a bureaucracy run amok. And we're seeing this all over the place. Health and Human Services has been an absolute disaster. Um they don't. They shouldn't have uh, the power to just institute these rules that have radical impact on all of our lives. I mean, this should. The legislature needs to be involved. The problem is changing that is a really slow process. So my first two bills that I introduced when I first got there were to limit uh, health and human services and limit MIOSHA, any of their restrictions they were imposing to thirty days without legislative involvement. And there is a need. I mean, if there was a huge attack or something, a bioweapons attack on Michigan, we need to have some, they need to be able to respond for a period of time without going through the legislative process, a few weeks. But the bottom line is um, we need to have the legislature involved in these restrictions because the people have a direct, we're accountable as legislators to the people. Sure. These bureaucracies are not. And so the Health and Human Services, after four weeks, we should be there authorizing or uh, rejecting rule emergency rules they want to put into place. Now, the problem with our system is there's no, you know, we put forth these bills. They're, they're not going to get signed into law. I mean, the bottom line is we need, uh, in my opinion, a different governor who will sign these into laws, or we need to, these petition drives that are out there. Those are a good thing, too. But the bureaucracy really does slow things down. Sure. So kind of transitioning more fully to your campaign, what is the what is the main pitch like in a ad sense of what your campaign is looking to do if you get elected to the 37th 
see. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to campaign on being really hands on and by experience. There's no question about this. Uh, there's not a pitch. I don't. This isn't a marketing thing at all. I just want to be honest with people. I want to engage with people. I think I have a much better record of of being able to engage across the broad spectrum of people and bring people together on certain issues. And I'm certainly going to be campaigning on that. There's a number of core issues that that are really relevant to this. I mean, one of them that's very, very personal to me is abortion. My wife was a war baby in Vietnam. She was abandoned in an orphanage, came to the U.S. in a cardboard box. My brother was adopted. My sister was adopted. She was adopted by a an American family. Uh, my nephew was adopted. So I'm just big into adoption and into life issues. And this is going to become an issue because of what's happening at the Supreme Court level. So that that's something that's very important to me. Um, you know, just good governance. We can't boil everything down to sound bites. Yes, it sounds great. And gets people fired up. You pat yourself on the back. But I'm running because I want to govern the state of Michigan well. And you don't hear people talk like that anymore, but it's absolutely what needs to happen. You know, I got nominated uh, for an award this year down there and people were right. They said, I, I dive deeply into these issues and really wrestle with it. And some of the policies we face, I really wrestle with it, probably too much. Just some of these are agonizing because you've got to wrestle with what's the best for our district and what's the best for our state. And what's the right answer on these things. And a lot of, a lot of the policies down there, aren't really clear cut. I mean, it's not a black and white issue. There's good and bad to, to some of these bills. And so I believe in good government, uh, good governance. I think that's going being deliberate, being well-informed, thinking through issues deeply, talking to a wide range of people. This is the way I do things. And that's what I'm going to do as a Senator. Absolutely. Redistricting. We've touched on it a little bit. There are three lawsuits uh, against the newly formed maps how do you see those playing out in reality? But and also, how would you like to see them play out in a way that benefits your constituents? I mean, honestly, it, it, we're lucky up here because when I saw my house district, all I wanted was the process to be fair. You know, it doesn't. It, that was all I cared about. I wasn't. It, we're all. We all think this gerrymandering that's gone on before is not a good thing necessarily. Albeit the new maps look fairly gerrymandered downstate. But the bottom line is I felt like the process, at least for my house district, the 107th, was fair. It made sense to add Charlevoix to Emmett counties. They're very similar counties. Very, uh, and that, that I didn't think anybody was playing games by doing. I'm sorry to lose the western part of our Upper Peninsula districts, but they there was no other choice. The UP lost about 10,000 residents, and they had to make it up somewhere. And the only place to make it up is by taking a few from me. I just happen to really like that part of the district. So I felt like that was fair. I feel like the Senate district, um, as I look at the district I'm running in, I'm not sure how much upside there is in just complaining about things. I mean, I always believe in playing the cards that were dealt, and this is sort of what we've been dealt. I love every part of that district. Leelanau County is great. Grand Traverse County I have a history in. Antrim County is neat. I mean, Charlevoix, Emmett, that was, this is my home. Uh, the Eastern UP, I love the people up in the Eastern UP. I've gotten really close with them. So I, I like that district. I hope it doesn't change Uh one of the, uh, yeah, I'll, well, we can get to that in a minute. But yes, um, I'm happy with that myself. I don't know where these lawsuits are going. I do know that we need to decide quickly because there's an awful lot of people that need to do an awful lot of work to win these seats. And the sure. longer we put it off, the worse it is. Absolutely. So you're not, you're not necessarily concerned about the lawsuits personally. You don't, you don't support them or you're not looking to get anything changed. No, I I'm happy with this. I, I, this is the district let's decide on it and let's go for it. And I'm going to win that district. So I, that's for me personally. Now, um, there are some areas I have a friend who was literally districted out of his seat, but you know, I'm not going to get into the, around the state. I have no say in it. And they told us that early. When I first got down there before, long before I was ever thinking about running for Senate, it was explained to me, John, you have no say. And if you try to have a say, it actually hurts things because they're, you know, they're going to reject that. So I stopped worrying about it and just said, well, I'm going to play the hand that's dealt me. And so I just happen to like the hand that's dealt me right now because I think it's a good district. So. Sure. What's the most important issue facing northern Michigan, in your opinion, or issues? Well, there's a number of them that, that are facing. I mean, one is mental health. And this is a tragedy, which was slowly unfolding throughout our whole district. We this was really put on my radar at a by a woman named Sabrina up in 
Sault Ste. Marie, who came to an office hour. And she pulled me aside and she broke down crying and said, John, uh, John, I work with people who are struggling with substance abuse. And, you know, a lot of the substance abuse we see is really sort of self-medicating for mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And she had been on the phone with somebody a, a week prior, young guy, as he overdosed and died. This is horrible. So she put this, this is how things get put on your radar. So so I started investigating and bring, talking to different groups and realized that we needed an overall strategy here because a, there's a lot of good efforts going on, but none of them are really working together. So we started out, kicked off by starting a meeting up in, um, did a meeting up in the Sault Ste. Marie area with about 30 different professionals, whether uh, people who had a, a role in this, I mean, including law enforcement, hospitals, community mental health people. And I was told by a number of them, this is the first time they'd all been in the same room together, which this is a recurring theme. We have, When I say bring people together, I don't necessarily just mean right and left. I mean, bring people together and get them talking sure. as opposed to working in silos all the time. That's sort of been the hallmark of my time down there. So we did that. Out of that came um, need for a recognition that we need more facilities. We have nothing up here for, for to help people. So I've been working to to help McLaren get this facility in Sheboygan, which which will offer more inpatient behavioral health uh, opportunities for our citizens. We're real close on getting funding for something with War Memorial Hospital up in the Eastern UP, which is great because there's almost no facilities up there. I've been working closely with Mary Whiteford. She's been trying to redefine the way mental health services are provided throughout the state. And I don't necessarily agree with every aspect of her plan, but we're in there pitching. So that is a top priority. Um, uh, another one, obviously, is energy. You know, that right now we're not hearing a lot about uh, the Line 5 pipeline, but in my mind, it's time to just quit talking and build the tunnel. Everybody knows that this pipeline, while safe, there's not been any problems with it, we can do better by putting it in this tunnel. And I don't know, we had, it was such a great solution. This was an example of government at work or it being effective. We brought all sides together, got a situation where the tunnel is going to be paid for by private industry under strict government oversight. It's actually going to be owned by the state of Michigan, but maintained by private, uh, private industry at their expense for the next hundred years. And we get the we get this pipeline off the f- floor of la- of the lakes there underground where it's much safer, and it's a tunnel that's big enough that other things can go through it, whether it's fiber optic for broadband, those type of things. Mm-hmm. This is a great solution, and it's ready to go. But there's been so many roadblocks along the way. We got to get out of the way. The other one that I found, and stop me if I go too much, but I just no, totally I, I love talking about these things is rural broadband. There are a lot of great programs out there to solve uh, the rural broadband crisis. But we've been deeply involved because it's such a big deal. We want more full-time residents in northern Michigan. We love our summer visitors, no question. We love the tourism. We love the the part-time residents. That really helps our economy. But a full-time resident makes a much, much deeper investment into our communities. It helps our schools, our businesses, everybody. Now, there's a number of things standing in the way of that. Uh, affordable housing uh, is a big problem. Child care is, is not allowing businesses to grow. But one of them is rural broadband, and we don't think about that. Because what, think of what happened over the last two years. So mm. many people realized, hey, I've always wanted to live up north. Now I work remotely, and we're not going back to the offices, so I can live up north. But if we can't solve those other problems, they actually can't live up north. So sure. we're, and, and I'll take the broadband issue for an instance, for a minute. These are really complicated issues. I'm the vice chair of the Communications and Technology Committee, and we talk about rural broadband. All these initiatives come through us. Who would have thought, though, that railroads were a, sub, a serious roadblock to rural broadband? I mean, I don't even know what the two have to do with each other, but the problem is we have to think about it. You have to dig under railroads every now and then to feed your fiber optic cable underneath. And so you have to, therefore, there's a huge process that these people have to go through to get approvals from the railroads. And sometimes it can take a year and a half. So while on the one hand, we've got residents just who understand this is no longer a luxury with school closings and businesses and mm-hmm. everything that's happened over the last two, two years, this is a necessity to have this uh, access to broadband internet. 
And yet you've got railroads standing in the way. So we're trying to fix that problem. I actually sat with rail with a group representing railroads, and I love railroads. I'm nostalgic for them. They have, they built our country. I mean, it was so sure. fundamental to building who we are. Sure. But I sat with them as they were talking about all oh, the complexities of of this and like how hard it is to approve this. And I said to them, "Look, the only reason we have the railroad system we do have." is because it was such a fundamental national need core to the development of our country that everybody got out of the way. And the bottom line is that's what broadband is today, Mm -hmm. and everybody needs to get out of the way because it's no longer a luxury. It it might be a bit of an ignorant question, but like you just said, Internet is basically no longer a, a need. And so railroads, I see, especially up in northern Michigan area, you see one train maybe every couple of months. What purpose do the rails serve and why 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 wouldn't the legislator prioritize internet over basically a, a railroad that is almost out of use? Well, I mean, the railroads still do serve a purpose and, and they, they're used more than because uh, I sort of thought the same thing. I never sure. see trains go by, but they are used more than more than you think. But it comes down to sort of rights issues, um, property rights issues, easements they've been granted. So it's really a legal issue that they okay. do control these intersections and, th- and various they control whether who gets to cross underneath a, a track and those type of things. And it's just built into American law. That's going to be a really hard, hard one to change long term. But we do need to do everything we can to get them out of the way and ease this process. So we have a bill that we've been trying to work through our committee where it puts a time limit on the approval process, which would help greatly. Sure. So I'm with you on this. I mean, I'd love to see railroads come back in, in into usage in our country. I honestly really don't like this when I, when you see rails to trails. Um, it always bothers me. I mean, granted, I love bike trails. I want to encourage outdoor activity, but there's something about it I don't like, and that is that you know it's sort of undoing this great symbol of American progress. I don't know. I get nostalgic about it, but the men and women who poured their blood and sweat into giving us this great transcontinental railroad. To think is now being used to ride bikes on is is silly to me, especially with some of the environmental concerns right now. You can ship so much material through railroads at such a, with so much less environmental impact than trucks. And I'm not speaking against trucks, but it's just an important part of our system here. So I do like railroads. I'd love to see them used more. But they got to recognize that just as people got out of the way for them, they need to get out of the way for the progress in terms of broadband. Absolutely. You were talking about how the first important issue that you spoke upon was mental health. That's not a typical conservative take. Have you had any pushback from the Republican Party about like not prioritizing it or have they been pretty much on board? You know, I think people, especially after the last couple of years, are starting to take it seriously across the board. I mean, our, especially with kids. Mm-hmm. This has been rough for, for kids. The you know, uh, school closures and missing graduations and starting off uh, my own family, uh, start uh, my son starting off college in our basement. And, you know, I felt so bad for him because he sure. did, he's a good kid. He did everything we asked for, studied really hard, got into a great college and he gets to start college in our basement. And that's just wrong. So I think, you know, in, especially with kids, they, they can't see that there, this is just a bump in the road mm-hmm. that at some point this will be a distant memory to them, everything immediate is reality. And sure. so we've had to work with him, and we see it. So we see it in our own family. You see it across the board up here. See people sitting at home being forced not to work for so long. And that does damage to people. It mm-hmm. really does. Um, and so I think people across the board are starting to take this seriously. Again, though, this is one I really don't care. Uh, and I've had issues like that. If this is a traditionally Republican or Democrat issue, it's sure. the right thing to do. And so and there, I've had a few of those where I'm sorry, we're just going to do this. And um, and it doesn't matter. Sometimes it bothers me about our party. Sometimes we just sort of check out on key issues mm-hmm. and let the other side champion them but who's not for mental health? I mean, I don't get that. So this is just more of a common sense type of thing. I mean, the, sure. there's one we're looking at right now. I'm wor- looking at it with a Democrat, actually. Um, I don't know if I'm going to pursue it or not, but it's related to the statute of limitation on criminal sexual conduct. Re- and it, it comes out of what we've seen at the University of Michigan with that Dr. Anderson and with uh, Larry Nasser at Michigan State, but it's much broader, broader than that. And for some reason, some of the Democrats have taken a leading role in this. But I mean, honestly... 
in the Republican Party, we don't believe that that it's okay, uh, that this behavior is acceptable, uh, this abuse is acceptable. It's terrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a believer, a Christian believer, there's nothing that makes this okay. So why wouldn't I join forces to do this? It's just the right thing to do. We'll be right back with Representative John DeMoose right after these messages. At a time when misinformation is all too common on social media, we take great pride in bringing you the news that matters that impacts your family, news you can trust. Local broadcast journalists bring you the facts, covering the stories breaking in our community and across the globe. Text RADIO to 52886 and let Congress know you depend on local journalism. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Nobody prepares more tax returns than H&R Block of Kingsley. That's right. At the H&R Block office right here in Kingsley, Michigan, more tax returns are prepared than at any other H&R Block in the world. For the tax professionals trusted by your friends and neighbors, trust H&R Block of Kingsley. From bookkeeping and payroll to taxes and advice, H&R Block of Kingsley, your full-service accountant. Open year-round in Kingsley, Michigan and on the phone at 231-486-5055. goes into a question that I have for you. I'll switch them up a little bit because it's a little later. The Lee Chatfield story. Mm-hmm. I'm not seeking to get your opinion directly on the story. How do you, first off, how do you see that having an impact on the upcoming elections? And then I, I'm going to ask all elected officials that I interview this question because I think it's really important that constituents are tired of lack of morals in politics you generally. Yep. How can elected officials regain the trust of people? And furthermore, so it's like it's both parties working together. Um, not political parties, but elected officials, and how can people better vet candidates so people likely don't get elected in the first place? Yeah, I mean, so I, you know, I'm not going to comment on the legal side of it, right? But you know, there's a pressure. A lot of people would normally come out and say, "Well, you know, we have to let the process play out," and I'm not going to comment on this. The bottom line is, I'm a normal guy. Every normal person out there should look at this and read. I'm, I'm disgusted by everything I'm reading. I, I literally am shocked by it. And um, this is, you're exactly right. This does nothing but harm the institution, this type of behavior. And I'm not even talking about the illegal stuff, even the stuff that's already been admitted to. The bottom line is it cur- confirms in people's mind that we're all down there, you know, out of control, doing all these terrible things. I mean, this isn't, but that's not the truth. I mean, that's that's sure. sort of a caricature of what what people think of elected officials, but I've met so many good people down there. This has been one of the great surprises of my job is I've met so many people who are literally there for the right reasons, who want to make an impact, who want to do the right things. I mean, I know me and the people I run with, we're kind of boring. I mean, we we're back at the house at nine o'clock at night. I go up to my room and watch Netflix. I, I even made the comment to somebody I'm not sure where all these people go to get in trouble because it's a really boring town down there. And I get tired at night because we get up early and we go crazy. So I think, though, you just got to really get to know people, understand what drives them. I do think that there is... There is wisdom in electing older people a lot of times, um, you know, because we've been through it. We've gotten the experience. We're no longer, mm. you know, this doesn't tempt me to go out to fancy dinners and things. I'll go out to dinners with lobbyists because that's my job and I have nothing else to do that night. But they're dinners and then you come home. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, I'll, I'll talk to you about that in a minute because that's a really good way to learn about things. But I don't think I could tell you from my experience that these things are rare. I haven't seen any of it down there myself. Not a bit. Some of that maybe because everybody knows where I stand. I love my wife. I have my kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I, they know where I'm at. And maybe they're just not inviting me to these things. But I haven't yet seen this. But those type of issues, like what we're seeing with Lee, I pray for his kids and his wife. I mean, this is really sad. I, I pray for him. But the bottom line is it does such damage. And it does such damage to Republicans right now. We stand up for 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 you know, traditionally conservative viewpoints and things, and that mm-hmm. doesn't fit within this. So I, I'm disgusted by what I'm seeing, but but it doesn't happen as much as people think, I'm guessing. So Sure, how, but how do elected officials regain the trust of people? How do you, I guess a better question is, how do elected officials stay out of that sort of stuff if it is, how? Well, know? okay, this, those are two different questions. One is how do you regain the trust of people? Is you, 
people need to see us and know us. I mean, there are people out there who would never know that I'm not doing that because they know the type of guy I am because I spend time with them. And that's the point is when we send somebody off and they disappear and we never see them for year after year, or they just come in and breathe, breathe in and out. Then you have to wonder, but people, you got to get to know people. I mean, this is what I love about my job is sitting with people. And I don't think anybody out there would believe anything like that about me because they know me. But as far as how do we, how do we not, um, have these things happen? I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not sure I know because I'm not, I'm Mm -hmm. not in this area. I mean, I would never dream of doing these things. And most of the people I know would never dream of doing these things. I think get to know who you're electing and really look at how they're living their life and what do they, what do they do for fun? And are they with their families and these type of things? So sure. You mentioned that electing older people and you had mentioned earlier that you wanted to have run for office ever since you were the president of the college Republicans. Exactly. So was that, you you said like, as you were growing older, you were constantly thinking about different, places that you could run but did you have that subconsciously like i should wait till i'm older or was that just something that you waited till you're older because it was just naturally you just never decided to run well here's the it's it's sort of neither what it really is is i am so glad i didn't get right into politics because at the time everybody i was like everybody probably worse i thought i knew everything about everything we're gonna go in we're gonna change this because i'd read some good books and i'd studied political science and i really believe that the decades since they humble you, you know, they, they make you realize you're not the fountain of all wisdom. And, um, I've made mistakes and bad, bad judgments. I've had business things that went well, business things that didn't go like I thought they would. I've, I've lived this and it made me a much better legislator. So again, I'm not universally ruling out. You're a young guy. You can accomplish great things as a young guy. And I did too. I mean, I wrote a book when I was 25. I produced my first uh, two hour documentary, things I never sure. should have been doing at that age. Nobody should have trusted me to do it, but I think you go for it. You go for it. But I do think there is some wisdom and some tempering that happens over the years that at least in my case has been very beneficial. Sure. What is the age for, because Lee was elected when he was, was it 25, roughly? Something like that. Yeah. yeah because, I, I only met him when I started campaigning, so I don't, sure, but he was young. Yeah. Sure. But like the human brain doesn't start to de- stop developing until 25. Yeah. So you should probably let that rest, you know, a little <laughs> bit before you, before <laughs> you run. Um, yeah. I'm you, not saying, I mean, there, somebody else might be able to do it, but had I done it at 20, uh, at 22 years old, I would have been a total jerk. I mean, nobody would have, I wouldn't have gotten anything done because sure. it was my way or the highway sure. back then. Just like most kids, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And then as the further you, it's funny because the older I've gotten, the less sure I am that I know everything, you know, you just are humbled by this or your, your people bring up other points of view and you have to take these into consideration. Um, and then the things which I believe from the very beginning have gotten stronger, you know, like my commitment to life. I have real reasons now at 22 years old, you know, I was committed more from a political standpoint. I've lived this now. Mm-hmm. I, so this can't change because it's it's become deeply ingrained in who I am. I mean, I not to say there isn't some sort of prodigy out there who couldn't do it. There may be. I'm not just universally t- saying people mm-hmm. aren't uh, who are young shouldn't do this. I'm just saying there's a benefit that comes with age that I've seen. And so I, I when I'm down there, I um, rent a room in a house with John Roth from Traverse City and Ken Borton you know, from uh, uh, Otsego County and Kurt Vanderwall, Senator Kurt Vanderwall. And, you know, we're older guys down there. And so we sit at night, we get tired early, we sit at night and we talk politics and do do all these things. And I do think I can see the temptation. Now, I, I, get, I, I get this, I, and I'm very close with one young rep who belies all of this, Andrew Beeler. He is a terrific young man um, from Port Huron. I just think the world of this kid. But, but he was in the Na- he went to the Naval Academy and then served in the Navy, so he has some life experience. But I can see the temptations for a young guy. You're coming in, and all of a sudden, people are telling you you're great, and you're you know you go out to dinner, you do these things. I can see how that somebody. Um, might be tempted by that stuff, especially as a younger person. I'm not going to risk. I've got a whole family, you know, all this stuff. But I don't know. I wouldn't say it's a universal truth. I just would say, I'd phrase it different to say there is a benefit to having some, a little bit of gray hair too. Absolutely. Yeah, because there's like, there's a delicate balance, especially in the national, uh, on the, the federal level, you hear people complain a lot about how it's this bunch of 80 year olds running the country yeah, there's, too. So there's definitely like a, a fine line between you don't want a bunch of young people, but you also don't want a bunch of 
See, you're exactly right. And I don't want to in any way discourage a young person from stepping out. I, I'm more talking about my own life. I've been humbled sure. by this. But I look at my daughter. I mean, she could do this job. She's a she's a powerhouse. Uh, the, she's studied computer science and then went to uh, and then got a grad school degree, a master's in international security affairs. And she's just killing it. I mean, this girl is so talented. She could come in there. It's just in my own life, I'm glad I was humbled by the ages a bit. I sure. think it made me a better legislator. Sure. Your wife is on the Harbor Springs School Board. Yep. Topic at the forefront of national thought is critical race theory. Many people yep. in northern Michigan, um, even being a Republican area still, I think it's it's gotten a little, I don't know if it's better or worse, but the, the feeling might have changed. But long for a long period of time, they kind of feel isolated from a lot of problems right. facing the country, kind of like a, their own little bubble. Yeah. But has crit- critical race theory been a topic of discussion in northern Michigan schools? I actually... That was going to be the the end of the question, but I actually was reading this morning that House Bill fifty seven twenty two, it's going to they're trying to get it passed. Republicans are trying to get it passed that uh, requires public schools to post all curriculum, books, right. literature, writing assignments, and planned field trips before the school year begins. So it's obviously something that has been thought of in at least the state of Michigan. Is that something that's a concern in northern Michigan or just Michigan as a whole? Sure. I mean, I've heard I've heard it, and there was a story of somebody out of a nearby town who who gave an assignment to their classes to go home and figure out how to become less white. I mean, that's wrong. Uh, you know, that is wrong. I, I look at So we have a wide range of kids, and my youngest is seven years old. He's in second grade, and th- there's not a racist bone in this kid's body. He is a good little boy. And so I think, I think parents get concerned that there might be teaching going on out there that makes these kids feel guilty for something they had nothing to do with. So critical race theory, though, I'll tell you the story on this. I I actually co-authored a bill that was, we never talked about critical race theory, but with this Andrew Beeler, it was his bill. But but it's basically addressing these topics. And he came to me with with this bill, and I said, Andrew, I get where you're going with this, but I think we need to really step it back and, and be sure that every word in this bill um, is what we it says what we want to say. I mean, what we're saying is not that these terrible things didn't happen in our country. They did. This mm-hmm. was really bad. I mean, I'm as appalled by what happened after slavery as I was before slavery because sure. of segregation and things. It just was terrible. Absolutely undermined everything that our country supposedly stood for. And, um, you know, I'm so, I love our founding fathers. I think that they were brilliant in the way they la- laid out this country. But it, what a shame that we didn't live up to it from the beginning. We're still paying the price today because of that compromise or because of, I don't mean mm-hmm. compromise in a good sense there. I mean, because we compromised our values from the beginning. Sure. We're still paying that price. So that don't, don't get me wrong on that. But by the same token, we don't need to be teaching our kids who are innocent that somehow they're responsible or that they're born racist or there's something wrong with, with who they fundamentally are. And that was the purpose of... Andrew Beeler's bill, it wasn't necessarily worded like that. It was innocently mistake. So what I actually did is I said, look, I get where you're coming from, but why don't we, uh, there's a couple of Democrats I'm friends with down from the Detroit area. I said, why don't we get in a back room and, and just talk through the points in this bill? Um, because I want, I want him to see what, what some of these things were perceived as. So we went, it was the most unbelievable meeting. At first, the two Democrats, they were like, what in the world? Are you guys crazy? Why are you talking to us mm-hmm. about this? We'll never support any of this. I said, no, 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 we, we don't even expect you to. But I think that language is really important. At one of the, here's an example. He had in there that the United States is not a systemically racist country. By systemic, he I know his heart. What he meant is we're not passing laws that are intentionally racist like they used to do, Um, you know, the actual system. But what was pointed out, and this was such an interesting um, exchange, my friend from Detroit uh, said, you know, are you crazy? It is systemically racist. And she was talking about sort of the unofficial system that she's lived with as a black woman. And the two were talking over each other. And what came together was that word systemic was a problem. And so we changed it to inherent. We're not, and, and that little bit of a difference made it work for both of them. Now, that line didn't even survive the last, the last version of this uh, 
bill that passed because we ended up wanting to just make it about the children. But those are the types of conversations. When I say bring people together, there's sure. no reason to intentionally offend this per- or to to in- unintentionally offend this person. And the only way you would know you're doing that is by talking to that person and understanding, wait, when I see this word, I hear something different than what you mean. And it took, and this is credit to people on both sides, it took being able to talk to them who we knew because we had built a, taken the time to build at least a cordial relationship with, that they weren't going to just full on judge every motivation we have on this, that Mm -hmm. they would see our heart and believe that we're not actually trying to perpetuate racism here. So they understood us and trusted us and we trusted them. So what we were left with, and I wish I had a copy of the bill here, but was fundamental things. A child is not born racist by virtue of their, their, um, their background. I don't know who disagrees with that. A child is not responsible for, we didn't use the word sins, but it's basically for the sins of their fathers in this ground, because they're not. My little Henry isn't responsible for things that happened in the 1950s, you know? And so these were four or five premises that everybody should agree upon. Now, I get it. When it came for a vote, it passed the House of Representatives with only Republican support, but the Democrats didn't vote no. They all abstained. Because on the one hand, they couldn't be perceived as supporting something, you know, this whole idea of going against critical. I understand politically they couldn't do it. But also there was nothing in that bill that any American who genuinely believes in our the way we're built doesn't agree with. So, I mean, those are interesting topics. You know, sure. that's how I, I look at these things. If when you hear those things, those horrible stories of go home and figure out how to become less white Nobody supports that. I mean, that's terrible stuff. And if that really is happening, we need to stop that. I mean, uh, and so that's why we did the bill. But but it's an interesting topic. I mean, I like one of the things I like doing is I like going for some of these hard issues, you know, and mm-hmm. you're never going to get everything you want right. on these issues. But we ought to open up dialogues about that. You know, the, uh, just give you an example that four year bachelor of nursing degree. So I'm doing this to help the community colleges offer. I'm doing it to help the the nursing situation is what I'm doing. But, you know, I had every university come after me after. I had long meetings with Michigan State and Michigan and for, you know, uh, 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 Wayne State University. And hour-long meetings letting them go through all their points. Because I'll always listen to people. I always want to learn what people are saying out there. But one of them said um, during the Michigan State, uh, I think it was Michigan State, she said, well, what about our articulation programs? These are great. And I said, you know what? They are great. How can I help? Because this is I'm not doing this to slam the universities. We're doing it to solve the nursing crisis. Mm-hmm. But out of one of these meetings, they said, I said, well, what happened when you and the community colleges talked through this? Because this has been an issue for 14 years. They've been trying to move on this. Well, we've never met with them on mm. it. I said, are you guys, are you kidding me? This is a serious crisis we're facing, and the colleges and universities have never gotten together to meet on this and figure out what, how they can work together. And so I've called a meeting, we're still working on the date, with colleges, universities, hospitals, and nurses. And we're going to get in a room, and we're going to see if we can't work on something together. That's what I mean sure. by bringing people together. And, there, and this is endemic. Um, almost any issue. You find you'll get one side coming at you and another side coming at you, and the two have never met to see if there's some way to work mm. together on this. And this is a problem with our system. Sure. About just to clarify something about that nursing program. Are are you seeking to get like a college like North Central Michigan College, a full fledged four year university? Just just the program? Or are you trying to get them as a whole college? No, to just offer the program. It, okay. it, it, there's already four other ones out there where they offer ba- uh, bachelor's degrees. One of them is. Uh, Cement technology, and and there's things like that. They're sort of, what I like about community colleges is they can respond to community needs, and that's Mm. why communities pay for them. And so in a community like ours, we have this problem with nurses, and it goes deeper than what I was saying. Even kids who graduate high school and want to become nurses, if they go off to a Ferris Mm -hmm. State or go off to Michigan or somewhere... A lot of times they never come back. So this is something that is a vested interest for our community, and we should be able to allow this. Now, recognize most community colleges aren't going to do this because they don't either have the demand or the means to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but those who those who want to do it and whose community is asking them to do it, this just makes it possible for them to do it. But, but we're not talking about making them universities at all. It's sure. just addressing specific community needs. Okay. Um, 
you touched on it that when they go away, they never come back, the young right. professionals. I was actually talking about it with Tristan about how affordable housing also drives away young people yep. as well. Yep. How, how do you go? How would you go about solving that issue about getting young professionals to stay here? Because most of my friends that are have you that are either graduators, you know, in the late stages of college, they don't plan on living around here because there's not a lot of jobs or there's not right. enough housing that fit their needs. And so they're just going to be living in, they, they want to move out of state or they want to be in like the Grand Rapids area, you yeah. know, great areas, but we're not able to retain talent in that's this a, area. That's the biggest problem I think we're facing, right? Or one of the biggest problems we're facing along with mental health and some of these other things. But um, you're exactly right. And it's a really complicated problem. Uh, Problem. I just led a panel discussion up in Traverse City with um, the Northern Michigan Economic Alliance um, or Chamber Alliance, and we had the head of MEDC and we had uh, somebody from MISHTA there, you know, for housing and uh, a, a, a person from the National Association of Manufacturers and a number of people w- there ta- uh, talking about this very issue. And everybody knows the problem. Nobody has the solution, but we're beginning to chip away at it. So when I say it's a complex issue, one of the things we just in Petoskey, we had been advocating for it and writing letters for this um, lofts at Lumber Square. It's a great, pro, uh, great downtown housing development that didn't get approved by Mishta for funding because it didn't quite meet one of their criteria of walkability. We're not, they said these rules favor urban areas. So one of the tasks is we got to get them to rewrite these rules or at least mm. make them more fair to areas like us. So th- there are specific tangible things like that. The business, you're, you're, what you're talking about with businesses or affordable housing, some of these are sort of chicken before the egg. We don't know which which causes which, but we've got to sort of approach all, answer all of these questions at the same time. Affordable housing, there are some great initiatives being being looked at now. Uh, MEDC is really starting to take a look at this. And we've had Quentin Messer, the new head of it, up to Petoskey. And up, uh, we've had him up north several times. And he seems to be taking this seriously. There's a number of businesses who are re- taking this seriously. I know of one local business who's going to is trying to construct a whole subdivision for workforce housing. Habitat for Humanity um, in Petoskey here is starting to build this whole new neighborhood of 42 houses, which is just great. Mm. I think solving the housing crisis is going to literally be all hands on deck, not a one-size-fits-all solution, but literally we're going to have to find project by project by project. Secondly, there's another ramification on the housing, which I have been really working on, on short-term rentals, okay? This is a tough battle. There was an issue um, uh, on short-term rentals that they tried to pass, and it's a uh, it's a priority for the Speaker of the House. The bill, as introduced last uh, spring, basically said that that uh, local local units of government could have zero say in regulating short-term rentals. So, a hundred percent of the houses within a given community uh, had to be available for short-term rentals. They had no say. And a person could come in. There was no limiting how many houses a person or a business could own. So a rich Mm. guy could come in and buy up a whole block and just use them to make money for short-term rentals. Well, that drives our residents further and further and further away. And it drives the cost of our housing way through the roof. But here's an interesting thing of how Lansing works. So I heard about this and hit the roof immediately, even though it's a priority for the speaker. They're going to ram this thing through. This was last spring. So I immediately introduced a competing bill saying Lansing could have no say in short-term rentals. Well, that became clear that was going uh, nowhere. So the next thing I tried to do is bring in, you know, again, bringing people together. I brought had a meeting with the uh, Michigan Municipal League, Townships Association, Airbnb, and realtors who are on the other side. They're, they're, they want um, these short-term, uh, you know, they, they support all these short-term rentals. N- neither side would give an inch. Sure. So rather than just sitting around and being no, and this is the thing, I, it's easy to be, you only see the headlines out there. The right. people only see, and they, I wish they could see behind the scenes. At that point, you can become a no and just not be involved in process. And, and you know, you have no say and you don't make anything better. I decided to get part of the negotiations, which means you're going to vote for whatever you come out with. So by version 11 is what we end up passing in the house. It's still terrible. It's terrible. It takes that, but it's better. It takes it from a hundred percent of the houses being available to 30%, which is still devastating for our area, but that's progress. The one I, the part I liked that I really got in, it felt like was what they gave to me was that, um, 
unlimited houses that a business or a, per, or a person could own to two. You can restrict it to two if you want, if you're the city of Petoskey, which prevents people from just buying up things. Sure, it's still terrible. I don't know why we have any say in Lansing, but that's the best we're going to get out of the house. So we we voted it out, and it went to um went to the Senate. I, I've immediately talked to you know Wayne Schmidt and other senators saying you guys got to make this a lot better. We're not getting any further in the house. Um, or we'll kill it. You know, if it comes back and it's not better from the Senate, then I'll vote no on it. But, um, but the point is, people downstate don't recognize what a huge impact this has in our right. area. Our speaker is a great guy, Jason Wentworth. I really like him. He's a level-headed. You're, there's, you're not going to see any scandals with him, at least from what I've seen. He's a good guy. But um, at the end of the day, he lives in Clare, Michigan. And my guess mm-hmm. is there's exactly zero short-term rentals in Clare, Michigan. It's not a tourist destination. So how can he legislate for right. Petoskey, which right. is totally different? How does that work? How you have, like, South Southern Michigan has completely different needs totally different yeah. than northern michigan so how do they how do they justify legislating something that is going to be d- leads to vast difference of outcomes for different localities yeah i mean it's a it's a huge fight and this is you pick the issue and that's why i say that the challenge is not really right to left uh, right versus left it's north versus south for sure. us because we only have out of the 38 senators and the 110 representatives 17 people representing knuckles north the rest of the the people down there are all Southern Michigan people, just by virtue of the population. So almost every issue that comes up mm. starts off favoring the people down there. It's really a challenge for us. Now, it's a good thing. It, being a majority is a good thing because most of those 17 people are Republicans. So mm-hmm. if they want to pass anything, we have tremendous power over our own party because we have a very thin majority there. And so they have to take us seriously. Right. And um, that's a that's a good thing. But we run into this all the time. Now, I forgot what our original question was. We talked uh, talked our way out of, out of it. But Yeah, just about affordable housing, how to keep young professionals here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's that. There is that. But again, chicken before the egg, we don't know because we have to do things to... Um, also build businesses here because mm-hmm. if there's businesses here, then there'll be more building of houses and things. I think we can do this, but we, I believe firmly we need some small manufacturing up here again. I want to diversify from being just this tourist economy. I think mm-hmm. it's great. It helps us. We're thankful for the tourism, but it's put us in a really weird place from an economic standpoint where we make all our money between June and September and mm-hmm. then the rest of the year. I mean, we're struggling. That's a terrible way to live, honestly. And so the more people we can get up here, the more businesses we can get up here, which require housing and broadband, it all is this sort of vicious cycle that we're operating in. But but there are good things happening along the way on those. I mean, uh, again, on the business side, you have to work on the housing side. We're working on that. You have to work on the business attraction side and workforce attraction side, sure. um, too. Uh, not just workforce development, but workforce attraction, getting people to move from other areas. So some of that's happening naturally through COVID is actually that's one benefit we've seen is mm-hmm. people do want to live up here. They're sick of the big cities and all this stuff. So they're giving it a try up here. Um, that will lead to new businesses. But another thing is we just passed these economic um, incentives, the SOAR package, which actually helped keep General Motors um, in the state to build their new battery Mm -hmm. plant. That's a good thing. Ford chose to go to Tennessee. That's a bad thing. And and I actually had to fight with people in my own caucus on this. Somebody stood up and said, well, wait a second. I think Ford going to Tennessee for their battery plants is good for the state of Michigan because it's an example of the free market at work. And I just looked at him like, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Sure. Nobody on earth, especially somebody representing people in the state of Michigan, should think that Ford going somewhere else is a good thing for the state. It's not. But the bottom line is, so we passed this package, which um, is now helping keep GM's battery uh, uh, facilities here in the state, which does benefit us up north because we get a lot of money from the auto industry too. Mm-hmm. And don't ever forget the amount of material that flows through our Sioux locks Right past us. It's, that sure. goes to the auto industry. So we all benefit. But the bottom line is um, with this new uh, money, we also really fought hard to make sure that some of it would be available to our businesses because we always lose out. It always favors downstate. And this sure. time is different. Jack O'Malley was deeply involved in that, uh, you know, out of the mm-hmm. uh, Lake Le- or Leonard area. Um, he's a good guy. He fought hard for that. We all fought hard for that. So some of those things 
these incentives are going to come up here for a change. So that helps with some of the business development. Um, it's just going to be a long time. This is not an easy solution, sure. and it's going to take some time. Absolutely. Any last topics or things you'd like to say to uh, people that you, they'd like to know, um, you'd like them to know about? No, other than I just thoroughly enjoy representing each and every one of these people. And I, I so, I'm so thankful for the engagements we have on both sides of the aisle. I mean, I love being challenged on things. And we have these discussions. And every now and then, my, one of my favorite things to have happen is to be proved wrong on something. Sure. You know, I just love that because you, you leave better. People ask about, uh, you know, wishy-washy uh, people in, in government. And there are certain core principles that I've struggled with for years, and they're set in stone. I'll never change. But you're a moron if you do this job and don't ever evolve in your viewpoint of things. When sure. people bring up good points, case in point, I had a um, had a um, a bill which is now about to go past the House. It's going to the Senate. This is not a huge thing, but it's just something that always bothered me. When you buy a car for $30,000 and you get a $5,000 rebate, well, any normal person is saying, well, I'm getting the car for $25,000. I mean, that's how it works. Sure. But the state of Michigan says, no, well, that may be true, but you're paying sales tax on the full $30,000. Mm -hmm. That's just stupid in my mind. Uh, it sure. just has always bothered me. So I have a bill that changes that. Recognizing we have a Democrat governor who has already indicated she's not signing anything that comes to her without any Democrat support. This is this is a fact. Like it or not, that's a fact. Well, I really want this this passed. And we ended up breaking the bill into two parts. And so the only way, if I really want it passed, is to go talk to a Democrat and get them to take the other bill. That's the fact. So I went to the first Democrat, um, a, a, a woman out of Detroit who was a very kind person. I talked to her, and she said, um, yeah, no, I can't do that unless you hold the schools harmless. Well, I didn't even know what she was talking about. So I said, all right, that's fine. We'll be friends, but we disagree on this. Then I went to Joe Tate out of Detroit. Um a terrific guy. I mean, he, he could easily be a Republican someday. But anyways, we um, I shared him this idea and he said, yeah, you know, but we, we're going to have to hold the schools harmless. Well, I realized, wait a second, I'm going to keep hearing this up and down the line. <laughs> right. This is obviously their position. So I went back and looked at it. You know what? Holding the schools harmless on this, it just means that they're not going to be the one. We're not taking the money from them. It'll, it'll come from a mm. different source. That makes sense. I'm fine with that. So we went and presented this, and it got passed and signed and everything. And the bottom line is, you know what? They actually made the bill better. I, I agree with him. By the time I really learned about this, I agreed with him. And so I could have stuck to my guns, had a Republican bill that just gets vetoed, or I can work with a Democrat. Hopefully it won't get vetoed. And they fed into the process and actually made the bill better. I think all of the people sitting at home should want that kind of representation of someone who's going to do that. And so those are the types of things that I really pri pride myself on. Absolutely. John, thanks so much for being on today. Oh, thank you. I appreciate of it. Of course.